Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series where we bring you conversations from authors all over the place into your headphones, into your room, into your car, into your daily walks, wherever you may be in the world right now. Uh, Today, we have a fantastic conversation with two playwrights, Sarah Rule and Rachel Cowder Nailbuff. I'm going to give them their full introductions in just a moment, but we're so excited to have them on. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah and Rachel. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Maddie. Um, I just wanted to give a quick shout out. Um, If you haven't already checked out our events on our Crowdcast page, we're doing um, a full virtual event schedule over at crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. We've got lots of good stuff coming up for the rest of July and August, um, which you can check out now. You can also watch replays of all of our past events. They are there on that page. Um, You can see the whole video. You can see the chat. You can pretend you were there. You can pour yourself a cocktail and um, act like you are in the room with us. Um, So we hope you check that out. Again, that's crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. All of our events are absolutely free to attend um, and to replay. All right, so without further ado, I will introduce today's guests. Sarah Rule's plays include In the Next Room or The Vibrator Play, which was a Pulitzer Prize finalist and Tony Award nominee, The Clean House, which is also a Pulitzer Prize finalist and Susan, winner of the Susan Smith Blackburn Prize, Passion Play, A Cycle, winner of the Penn American Award, Dead Man's Cell Phone, winner of the Helen Hayes Award, and most recently, Stage Kiss and Dear Elizabeth. She has been the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship, the Helen Merrill Emerging Playwrights Award, the Whiting Writers Award, the Penn Center Award for a Mid-Career Playwright, the Feminist Press's 40 Under 40 Award, and the 2010 Lilly Award. She is currently on the faculty at Yale School of Drama and lives in Brooklyn, New York with her family. Rachel Cowder Nailbuff is a writer working in performance and oral history. She is the editor of the New York Times bestselling My Little Red Book, an anthology of people's first period stories, co-editor of the Feminist Utopia Project, a collection of essays and art that imagine a better future, and author of Stages, coming out from Thick Press this year, a hybrid collection of writing and interviews with end-of-life care workers that feels truly revolutionary in both form and content. That's according to Elif Bautman, author of The Idiot. She directs Three Whole Press, a small press for performance works in printed formats. Rachel also runs a memoir program for seniors with Caitlin Ryan O'Connell and many friends through the Bushwick Star and the New York City Department of Aging. She's also a lecturer in the English Department at Brooklyn College. I just want to put in my own little personal plug. Um, I loved Stages. I think it's one of the best books I've read this year. It really moved me in a, in a deep and um, lasting way. And um, I've just been thinking a lot about it as um, we're kind of entering this new era of mutual aid and, um, and care work. Um, you know, we're shifting, our economy shifting uh, into something hopefully better and, and more humanist. And I think this book is one of those books that kind of shows us the way. So I'm really excited to, to hear this conversation today. Um, all right, so without further ado, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go away and I'm gonna let Rachel and Sarah take it away. If I could just jump in really quickly and say how much I agree with you, Maddie, about what a beautiful book stages is and how it couldn't be more relevant. It's it's funny, but I haven't been able to read from start to finish many books in quarantine, I think because of the urgency of the state of the world. But this was one book that I read in, in one or two sittings. And I think because 
of exactly what you described about about care and about authenticity and about how we how we reveal the personal um, through service uh, because I think service is on all of our minds and also we're, we're looking at the nursing home in a completely different way now hopefully I mean hopefully um, in the way that this book does the the invisible is becoming more visible Maddie and Sarah thank you so much um, yeah I feel I feel a desire to also thank the people who were involved in stages because um, it is a collaboration. Stages is a kind of hybrid genre book that combines interviews that I conducted with um, end-of-life care workers at a nursing home alongside my own writing. And one of the reasons I'm so grateful to be talking with you today, Sarah, is um, to just think together and talk together about what it means to make a collaborative work. Um, but yeah, I, I was thinking um, it might be nice to just read the names of the people who I interviewed um, as kind of, I know both of us think about rituals, but just as a way to begin, um, because I think their words changed me and I wish they could be here with us today. Um, so I'm just going to say thank you, Edna, Melody, George, Jennifer, Rabbi Hirshorn, John, Agnes, Caitlin, Carisha, Glendalee, Sharon, Chanel, Daniel, Mojdi, Nicholas, Joy, Anne, and Rosa. Can I ask, I love that you start with that ritual, are, are they all still with us in the world? Um, it's such a good question, and I think one of the things that's been very hard and, um, yeah, I think challenging about releasing this book is I, I don't know. I actually don't know. Um, yeah, I haven't been able to reach anyone at the nursing home. A lot of their communication has been shut down. Um, but I also teach at senior centers, which um, Maddie mentioned, and the, yeah, the rate of, of loss there is really staggering. Um, and it's, it's been interesting. Um, there, there was like that New York Times expose that talked about how one third of deaths in the U.S. have occurred in nursing homes, and that I believe also includes nursing home workers. But there are no stats about nursing home workers themselves. There are stats about the rates of, um, of residents. So um, it feels just like such a, a weight um, and, and to, to not know. Um, but yeah, I, I'm really, I pray for that, that invocation is also a prayer. Um, yeah, totally. Um, um, it's also interesting when you when you talk about the New York Times kind of portal into the world of nursing homes I feel like a lot of what I've read is about exposés of nursing home abuse during this time or the kind of horrible stories of abandonment but what I saw in your book was such um, care from these workers towards their patients um, and uh, residents and a real sense of calling and vocation, you know, that it wasn't just a job for them, but was really, uh, they were attracted to the idea of helping people enter um, a time before death and in, a, in quite a spiritual way. So I also found that to be wonderfully healing to read at a time when um, human nature itself seems sort of under, under question. Thank you for bringing that up. That's been something that's been such a frustrating um, spin and emphasis, I think, on the news lately. I think it started, um, that that story first made its way to me from um, this, like, tragedy in Spain, I think, where there was an event, like, pretty much an abandoned nursing home, and versions of that story started happening here. And for me, that narrative is so much... 
um, less about the like betrayal and negligence of nursing home staff and um, much more about what happens when we fully abandoned, abandoned caring for our care workers. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons that the rate of illness and, and death in nursing homes has been so high um, is that nursing homes are so understaffed. Right. Like one thing that was so striking to me about this book was I conducted these interviews two years ago, and this is at a um, relatively um, well-resourced nursing home. And even then people felt so pressed for time um, and that they couldn't, um, yeah, you have to do the same amount of work every day um, and you can't really take time to grieve and to feel and to process the losses that are a part of your every day. Um, and if there wasn't time for that, then I cannot imagine what is happening now. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 I know some people haven't been able to read, um, the stories of what's going on in the nursing homes, but the details are pretty horrifying in terms of what staff have to do to try to treat people. And um, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about how I wonder if there will be a future where we can have basically care for care workers, like trauma support for everyone who's been on the front lines, um, which has always been necessary. Like that's one thing that I feel like um, stages in those interviews really brings up and um, was sort of a position I inadvertently found myself in as a playwright embedded in this staff resilience group. I was like, oh, I'm, I feel like I'm suddenly the social worker, even though that's, I'm, I'm sure you've been in that place too, Sarah. I feel like as playwrights, and as researchers, um, wit- witness is so therapeutic, but I was like, wow, witness means to be a part of, of working in a hospital um, and a nursing home. Yeah. Yeah. And I love what you say about caring for the caretakers. I mean, I think our economy can be so brutal that there's barely enough time and attention paid to caretaking, much less to, sorry, I don't know what that is, much less to caring for the caretakers. And my husband is a psychiatrist and he's been starting a podcast lately where he's talking to frontline workers um, who've been in the ER in New York. And I was listening to his first conversation, which is with um, an ER doctor who's a good friend of ours. And she said, you know, I didn't even want to talk about my experiences to anyone um, because I didn't want the stories to be sensationalized or taken out of context. I, I, I you know, she felt she'd been a witness to these people who died and um, she didn't really want to share the trauma of that and it was really hard to speak about and she spoke about it with Tony because he was a friend but I think we're, we're gonna we're going to see such a level of trauma um, for the people who've been caring for people the past year it's just it's staggering and how art can help us with catharsis and witness and service I think it's I mean, I think your book is a wonderful portal in for people who want to do that kind of work. Yeah, thank you. I, I mean, reading, I was, I was reading letters from Max um, and really, I think a part of the book that um, hit me today was just this conversation you two had about <laughs> just about the role of art, but yeah, what what is what is art's function? And you know, you say like maybe all art is in some way helpful, and um, or 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 ought to be. And Max says, well, maybe all art is already helpful because it's not war, <laughs> basically. <laughs> And maybe it's just it can distract us from from extraction and um, killing each other, and then and that that's also so important. And um, yeah, I guess I just wonder 
where you are at with that question right now because even though I made this book and maybe it feels clear to others like ah, the past couple months have been um yeah I feel like I, I keep using this metaphor like I'm in a centrifuge like I'm just like I feel like I'm in the mud um mm-hmm. about about um what what how how writing can can be useful service yeah yes <laughs> it's a centrifuge. um i i mean first i might i might just give the um the listener a little context about the book and also how the book came to be and how how you are in the book too so this book letters from max is a book i co-wrote with a former student max ritvo who was a really brilliant poet who was taking a playwriting class of mine at Yale and Rachel was in the class too. Um, and we all got to know each other and Max had a pediatric cancer called Ewing sarcoma and he was in remission at the beginning of the class and by the end of the class he'd had a recurrence and was no longer in remission and um, Max and I became quite close, particularly after graduation and when he was in clinical trials and he moved to New York to get an MFA in poetry at Columbia. So we wrote letters back and forth, um, you know, while he got his poetry MFA, while he got married, while he had all kinds of, you know, adventures in his life. And we'd always planned to make a book of them together and then talked about different arrangements of the letters. And then um, Max died. I'm so bad with years. Um, he died when he was 24, so that was how many years ago now? I think it was. I remember learning about it when I started Brooklyn College because it was like that day. It was yeah. my first day, so I think it was 2016, the fall of 2016. That's right. He never saw Trump elected, which we were all... Right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. In fact, the anniversary of his death is coming up. It's in August. But um, my God, my daughter put some alarm on her phone. I just have to turn it off. I mean, <laughs> said that um, I think what's what's interesting putting letters from Max in a conversation with stages is um, like you, who started the conversation with a ritual of the names of the collaborators. When I sign books. Um, for letters um, from Max, I always find myself wanting to not sign for Max because that doesn't feel right. Mm. But, um, you know, I circle his name and I make a little I make a little light raise around it just so I have a sense that there are two authors, even though Max isn't here to sign. Um, and I think also what the books share in my mind is this kind of unfolding of relationship that is in real time, you know, that some art uh, concocts a facsimile of that in narrative, but but in this case, they just were authentically unfolding in real time. And then a little artifact was made and, and shared. I love that. It makes me think of um, Maria Irene Fornes's work. And um, she was a Cuban American playwright who, I, did she teach Paula Vogel or I feel like you taught in a way her. that was influenced by you studied with her. Yeah. But Amazing. Paula, Paula knew her too, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like when I first encountered her work firsthand, I was like, I know you, it must be through my <laughs> teachers. Um, but I wasn't sure exactly of the lineage, but I feel like there was such an aha moment um, encountering her theory of drama where and she says something like drama doesn't have to come from conflict. Mm-hmm. It can come from people knowing one another and the outside world is, is enough drama. Um, something like that. And I, I feel like, yeah, your book has so much velocity because we are witnessing such a deep connection. Um, that is, that is so honest and vulnerable. Um, and I'm, yeah, I, I feel like 
I felt compelled to bring myself to the story of stages because everyone at the nursing home was so vulnerable with me. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the book actually first um, started as a performance that the nursing home staff um, performed at a cathedral. Um, I was hired by this nursing home to make a, staff, a, a play with the staff. Um, but there was something about that performance that actually felt like it was missing to me, which was that, not that the play needed to be about me, but that I felt that um, it just, it wasn't fully complete because nothing is ever neutral, you know? Um, I had strung their words together and I had been so changed by their words and um, a book felt like a way to show up. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, and I, and I didn't really imagine it would be a book until after the performance was over. And I was like, oh, this is, this is the beginning. Um, mm. And it's, and there's much more from this one event that needs to be shared. Um, I mean, I feel like that's always kind of a frustrating thing with plays and performances is like, I mean, it's beautiful, but there's such a limited um, moment when those words can be heard. But yeah, with this book, it felt like they're the nursing home workers' words. I really wanted them to be heard by many more people um, and people who wouldn't be able to make it to a church for a variety of reasons, but also that like my work wasn't done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder for you with letters from Max, um, I mean, in the book, you talk about how you decided that you would want your letters to be bound together and with a string, but I guess I, I, I'm really curious to learn more about the process, especially the narrative voice that you have that's sort of dedicated to the reader, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I have like a thousand thoughts about what you just said. And and one thing I love about the fact that you chose to include yourself in stages is um, there are two narratives at work. You know, there's this play that's about to happen, and then there's you in it. There's, there's the narrative of doubt and self-doubt, um, which I love. And, <laughs> and there's process. And I think for so many people in the theater, what we love is the process and being in the room and being in the rehearsal room and the audience is sort of irrelevant. So yes. I sneak <laughs> into this process, even though, you know, actually in a, in a more intimate way and in, in a certain way than if you even had come to see the play, because you don't actually get to see the process when you see a production. They're very different. Um, and I, as a playwright, I'm always a little bereft when the process ends and you know the thing becomes a performance um but in terms of oh and in terms of fornes i was really intrigued by what you said about how she rejects a, a dramaturgy of conflict and you talked about the velocity in letters from max being um a coming to know one another and i think that's such a beautiful idea that that plot can be as simple as a coming to know um, and that there is great beauty in people coming to know each other, that that is a story as much as people kind of slinging mud around and um, insulting each other, which sometimes is what passes for um, <laughs> the idea of conflict in, in, in um, American theater. Um, and I'm not, I'm not thinking of any particular play, but just um, a drama of a quarrelsome drama. <laughs> supposed to you know deep conflict um anyway but you asked about the 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 narrative voice and letters from max which you know i i had self-doubt about um inserting myself too into that narrative because there there was a kind of purity in it just being our letters but i think because the narrative was in some ways unfinished because max died and because he wasn't there to arrange the letters with, it did feel like there was an empty space for 
how I was arranging them, what was between the letters chronologically, what came after, you know, what what the grief was like after he left. Um, and it was hard to write. It was it was sad and lonely to write. Um, hmm. but I, I'm, it also was joyful because I got to, um, talk to Max some more. It made me think so much. I mean, it was wild to return to this phrase of Max's, um, which I'd heard, I guess, uh, several years ago from his poetry. Um, he came up with this phrase, lyric complicity, yes. um, which is so beautiful, which, could you kind of describe what it is, Sarah? I think you've probably thought about it a little more than I have. Well, he has a poem that's like a little bit of a joke. It's like lyric complicity for one, lyric complicity, and I, I can't quote it exactly. But I remember when he was in that playwriting class, he, he kind of, I don't know if he'd already invented the phrase, but he kind of came out with it. He was like, you know, he was always going on a brilliant digression and he said something about lyric complicity. And I was like, wait, is that a thing? Did you invent that? Because <laughs> I thought it was so wonderful. And I think lyric complicity, <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even know what it is exactly, except, it, you know, maybe it is that kind of coming to know that kind of intimacy with a little bit of mischief, you know, complicity suggests a slight bit of mischief. Um, <laughs> totally. Like I feel solidarity in poetry. It's, it's wild because I feel like that is what both of these books are, are trying to do. Um, where there is a sort of intimacy between the subjects like you and Max, me and the nursing home workers, me and everyone I'm involved with in trying to put this book off to play on its feet. But then also sort of after the fact, an in, a real intimacy between the writer and the reader. Mm -hmm. um, and it's sort of being pulled in all of these wild directions. Um, it, it, it does just feel really like a, a unique form where real people are held at every point of connection, you know, in this web. Yes. And I think when I think about the phrase lyric complicity too, I go back to, I remember when I was in my early twenties, I was writing this long paper that I never finished. That was about the lyric eye, the, the mm -hmm. lyric poetry. And the idea that this eye, not like the eyeball, but like the per the person was in, in some crisis. Um, and I probably never finished it because it bored me to write about it. I mean, what interested me more was probably writing poetry or writing plays. But I was thinking about the solipsism of that confessional eye in poetry. Because lyric poetry traditionally is an eye just blathering on and on about the self. Um, <laughs> So, you know, this other poet, as a joke, created um, uh, personism as a movement. Um, now I'm going to forget the poet's name, but I can send it to you, Maddie, after the fact, if it's of interest. But he said, you know, the idea of personism is that it's born between two people instead of two pages. Uh, and so I think of that with stages, you know, that it, it is between and among people. I, I think there is a, a dynamic with that, that we're touching on that also just makes me think of how strange and wonderful it is to be a playwright that also thinks about the page. Mm -hmm. um, and in that, it really gestures at real life. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's, um, but it is also, I mean, I, I feel so informed by your writing, Sarah. So it's, this is a moment of real entanglement for me where I feel that my interest in that stages, um, was deeply informed by reading your work at a young age and loving it so much and being so astonished that something that is in print can also 
really gesture at something that's supposed to come to life, but that it's complete still on the page. Um, and I, I guess I wonder if for you, you almost think of this book, if, if you think of your book as kind of like a play um, in any way, because I think one thing that came up for me while working on stages was that I felt so much better about writing in that form than writing a play that was meant to be performed. Um, but it still felt like it was using all of my theatrical muscles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think letters from Max probably will be a play at some point. I've been working on it a little bit at first. I thought, Oh, it's too intimate. Mm. play. I, I don't wow. want another person to be embodying Max. That's weird. Um, but the more I read out loud from it at readings, the more the dialogue of it, you know, I would often have two readers and I thought, Oh, oh yes, it is a play. There's always two readers. It's not, a monologue it's a dialogue but I also think in terms of your how you see the page and um so so interesting what you say about it's it's on the page but it's gesturing towards something to come to life but complete unto itself I love that phrase and I remember when you came into to the classroom too I thought and when you applied to graduate school in, in playwriting I thought oh dear this woman could do anything she wants. I mean, she could, she could be a journalist. She could be an activist. She could, um, she, at 18, she had a, a book on the New York Times bestseller list. Why would she want to go into theater? You know, of all, <laughs> all things, you know? I think it's very- Still asking that question. <laughs> put it all together. Yeah, that's so, I, Maybe you said those words to me at age, you know, 20, but I really wish I had heard them. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like it's been such an intense 10-year journey of asking that question and kind of landing at stages, honestly, which is sort of a hybrid of all of those things. Um, and maybe that's why it feels really right, um, maybe right for the first time. <laughs> but yeah I and we have no theater now I mean I think that's the other thing to say theater is completely decimated so it's interesting that you've landed on this book as a form which is very holy to me because it is a record of being in in process in a theater and a time when that's we can't do that so it feels especially holy to return to the site of that and you know life is long you you with you know knock on wood with any luck you might have 10 more incarnations as a writer of all kinds of genres. And, um, and I also, you know, I think about, I think you're the first person who introduced me to Maggie Nelson's work. And we talked a lot about the Argonauts, which is also one of my favorite books. That's such a hybrid form. And, you know, we don't need to be so, so narrow in our thinking about genre. It's so true. It's so true. Um, yeah, I've been really sitting with this line from the writer and activist um, Adrian Marie Brown, who says something like, um, you know, what you pay attention, I mean, this is a very deep idea, but um, I just heard it from her recently. Uh, what you pay attention to grows. Mm. And so instead of focusing on what's broken, what to critique, who to bring down, um, let's, let's point our attention to what we want to cultivate and nourish. And I think there was a real, uh, there is a part of me that I'm trying to let go of that has spent so long being upset at theater and how rigid it seems and feels and how I don't really know my place in it and what am, what am I doing? Is it a play? Why don't other people think it's a play? <laughs> um, is it performance art? What is it? Is it activism? And just, I, I feel like, yeah, just hearing those words recently 
um, I know that it was actually, I think it was in reference to like, you know, the police state and whatever else. And I, I, I received it in that way, but also there was a part of me that was like, all right, Rachel, like, it's just time to not care anymore <laughs> about, about genre and allegiance to a field or form and to just, um, go forth, especially as all of the fields are dying and reimagining themselves. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's beautiful that the idea that what you give attention to grows and both the monstrous, that when we feed our monsters, they grow very large. When we feed our children, they grow large <laughs> too. And what, what do we want to feed and care for? And I, you know, I also think about a writer like Sheila Hetty, who's, you know, she's a writer. I think of when I think of your work and stages, I love Sheila. And it's interesting to think that she's, she was a playwright and she kind of had it, you know, with the theater. So she invented all these really interesting collaborations and forms um, and found different audiences that way. You know, I think you have this line about how former uh, poets make great playwrights and you talk about that with Max too. Um, I feel like my favorite playwrights are playwrights who also um, sort of maybe don't necessarily leave the theater, but really have love affairs with other forms yeah. and what and what happens in those other forms. And I feel like that's part of why Letters from Max is so beautiful because it, it has the logic of a play and it's such a book. It's such an intimate experience and I'm so excited to see it reincarnated. Um, but yeah, I love Sheila Hetty's work so much too. And I feel like Claudia Rankin, Don't Let Me Be Lonely. Yeah. Her her genre-defying work is so amazing to me. And I know she's also um, thinking about the theater. Um, and so there is this constellation of, of writers who go between forms and maybe bring bring something of one world to the next. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, and I think what I want to say to potential readers of stages is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of a new <laughs> genre. You know, this book is not just for theater lovers. It's for other kinds of readers as well. Thank you. Yeah, that's, um, that's what I always want people to say about everything that I do. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be afraid. And also, this isn't just for theater people. I feel like I write things for a friend, and most of my friends don't um, care about theater. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I really Isn't appreciate that. that. Your favorite thing, though, when someone's like, oh, my God, I hate poetry, but I loved your poem. Or I hate the theater, but I had a really good time at your play. I always get very excited. Yes, it's the best feedback. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I feel like it's we want to be surprised and taken by surprise. Um, yes, yes. I... I want to come back, if it's okay, to come back to one thing you said earlier, just about the process of readings that you did, because I'm really, I mean, Zoom readings are really weird, um, and I still haven't figured out how to do it in a way that's compelling. I've, I've done, like, voice recordings, because I, I find it very distracting for people to be looking at a face. Um, and no one really wants to be on Zoom, but I, I guess I just wondered for you with the reading experience, you said you had two people reading it, and just like, how did you land on that? Did you read both parts? I, I'm trying to remember, I think I went to a reading, but I, I blocked out the logistics, um, and I also wonder if you have advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's Interesting. I, I'm trying to think. I, I think I usually would have someone read Max's voice. So I think one time one of his former professors, Timothy Donnelly from Columbia, read his voice. 
and I read my voice. One time, Mary Louise Parker read Max's voice, and I read my voice. Oh, he would have loved that. He would have loved that. <laughs> he became obsessed with Max and his poetry. She, she felt just enraged that she'd never met him. Um, I mean, I think it could be really fun to, to use actors um, in a stages reading to get some of the multivocal quality. But I also have, lo I, I haven't, for some reason, I've been busy when you've done your Zoom readings, but I've loved the idea of how you've presented them, that you've, you've done, you've thought outside the box and sort of had people lie down and had it be um, relaxing and not Zoom as usual. It might just be that readings in general are weird. Um, and that because we both come from a theatrical tradition, hearing you talk, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking out loud a little bit, but that um, we have a certain kind of expectation for how dynamic it should be to read. Mm -hmm. But that books, um, I might be asking too much of a book, um, <laughs> you know, that like actually it's okay that it's not as dynamic as, as a play, um, mm. that it's something else, but it, yeah, I, I think the actor question is interesting. And, um, for anyone who's listening out there, I guess be on the lookout. Um, it's mm -hmm. really something to think through. It feels, yeah, it feels so intense when the words are based on a real person. I can't really imagine what that must have been like, Sarah, to to hear it through someone else. Well, what surprised me was that I was happy that there was a real body attached mm. to the words. I mean, I thought I think I thought it would be a violation, but actually I thought it was more life for these mm. words, like um, embody in an embodied way. And Max was such an embodied person, like he wasn't this kind of fragile, oh, my poem's in the air, but I'm just lying. You know, he was like incredibly vivid and embodied and wrote about sex and sickness and um, the holes in the body. And you know, he just mm -hmm. he was super interested in the body. So in that sense, um, it ultimately made sense to me that there would be a body speaking the words. I really, I really like that. And I think um, one takeaway that I had from all of these conversations was how much people wanted to be witnessed and, mm -hmm. but also how actually uncomfortable they were being interviewed and also performing. People had so much stage fright because it was so out of their wheelhouse um like I stage fright I have never seen before um how did you help them <laughs> I, I had to give the most um unexpected pep talk like I mean it was they these were our adults who have seen life and death and I look up to them so profoundly and in the 10 minutes before our show like everyone just had this like total meltdown in a way that um the the dynamic totally shifted for a second and everyone was like and also I had printed everyone's scripts for them it wasn't a memorized reading mm -hmm. um but literally one person was like I, I I'm not gonna remember how to read <laughs> I was like you are going to remember how to read you know how to read and also you don't have to be an actor. Like you just, you have to be you. And so you're already prepared. You have everything that you need and people are here to support you and they're not expecting a performance. And so um, you feel nervous, but you are exactly, you, you, you have it all. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that did reassure people. Um, and I think, yeah, hearing you talk, I'm thinking about how I'm still so attached to those real people um, and how there's an interview with a rabbi near the end of the book where he says, he's talking about this in reference to dying and aging, but he says, at every stage, we have to reimagine ourselves. Um, otherwise, we become bitter. And um, 
or there will always be this sort of resistance. And I feel like I'm just still, I'm, st- this book is so new. I'm still holding on to the reality of these people on this performance. And maybe there is a way to reimagine what it means for this book to be out so that their words can really be heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe what you're saying about Max applies here too, which is that some real truth of who they are can come out when there is another voice. Um, because yeah, to be, yeah. And it's, if it's the right actor, I mean, I think that's part of it. You don't want an actor who feels overly performed because what you're talking about too, when you were telling them, it's not, you don't want it to feel performative. You want it to feel like them. And there are actors who can do that. And some actors can't do that, but some actors can amplify other voices simply through the act of reading. And I always find that incredibly moving, actors who can get out of the way like that. Mm. Um, And I love what the rabbi said about stages and um, the idea that the whole book is a play on, you know, stage as theater, um, stage as, you know, stages of life, stages of moving towards death, stages of grief. Um, And the idea that the rabbi said we have to keep reimagining in every stage of life where we'll get bitter. I, I always loved when I read Carl Jung on stages of life um, in that book he has about sort of the the pathologies of each decade. I thought, hmm. oh, individuals <laughs> don't have to be neurotic. They could just be going through it a stage, you know, just like with kids, how comforting it is when you think, oh, it's, it's just it's not this way for forever. <laughs> God, I hope not. I know. I just turned 30 and it was such a relief. I turned 30 about a month ago and I was like, the 20s, goodbye. Bye. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, maybe I, I, I know this conversation was supposed to be like 20 or 30 minutes and I feel like it's been more, even though it's also felt like a second, but, um, yeah, I feel like I feel, I feel very grounded in this moment and this stage. Um, I really felt that reading your book, Sarah, I just want to say that, that like really all of the troubles of my neuroses just are totally gone after reading letters from Max because I am so, I'm just in a feeling state and not in a, in an analytic state and things feel so much more clear in terms of what's important. And, um, well, I think it's a beautiful way to end also with your birthday and, um, Maybe before we end, is, is it okay if I tell the audience who you are in, in the book and letters from Max, that tiny? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the first um, moments of, of the book, Max is giving this incredibly long discursive lecture on Philip Glass. Um, and he goes on for about an hour. <laughs> and I say that one woman in the class seemed a little irked that a man was taking up an hour of class time and that she was to become one of his very best friends. And that was you, was it not? It was. I was so pissed. I was like, (laughs) who's this dude? Come on. It was so like Yale dude. I was like, is there more of a Yale dude? There isn't. And I think that that's also what made Max and this book so, Max so lovable on this book so fleshy and real is that he was aware that he was also imperfect and um he was so honest about that and I loved being surprised by him I couldn't have been more surprised what a lesson in first impressions and how little I knew um well we're all um wrestling with the fleshy imperfect (laughs) yeah that's such a good way to put it that's one thing that people will really relate to in your book is watching you track that as as this perform you know the velocity of a performance about to happen there's no ticking clock like that and you wrestling with the particularities of living um and wondering 
as you go through it. It's it's really a beautiful book, and um, so happy just to get the chance to talk to you. Same, uh, Sarah. It's been really wonderful. Well, thank you both so much. I took notes in this conversation. You both said so many things that really struck me and I want to come back to. So really, thank you so much for taking the time today. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get fleshy? What was the last thing Sarah said? I wanted to note that down. I'm noting it down right now. <laughs> okay, something about fleshy imperfection. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, all right. Well, is there any anything else you two want to say before we say our goodbyes? Any last thoughts? I just hope my sound quality wasn't totally compromised by all the little comings and goings in my little totally fine. domestic world here. But no. I feel like it's very Sarah rule to I mean it's a part of it, you know. Just have the hope and Anna and phone and I know, but in the best way, like it was a revelation to me when I think it was in your essays, I don't have time to write. You're like, what if the interruptions are like, um, so I love it. I want to say, um, Sarah and I texted about this, but yeah, I do want to say in a recorded way, I don't know how you can string this in, but however you can, Maddie, um, I, I do want to also just thank Max. Um, I feel like he, Sarah, I think you said he's the third interlocutor here in this conversation. And um, in your book, you talk about how um, maybe we don't always get to speak with the dead, but there is a sense that they are listening. And I was, um, I, I'm just thinking about that. And I, I feel like part of why this conversation has been so pleasurable and easy is, is that he is. Yeah, I, uh, I often have the sense that Max is listening and I'm sure if he knew the two of us were talking, he would want to be part of that conversation and I'm sure he found a way. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. <laughs> oh, I love that because it brings it all back to what you were saying about, um, you know, a plot can be as simple as people coming to know. I feel like this whole conversation has been an example of that. Um, and I feel like I've come to know both of you and Max um, through this just lovely hour. So uh, I, hope our, I hope our listeners feel the same way as well. And um, thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.